You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to John chapter 10. We will read the verses 1 to 21 as well as the verses 27 to 30 of John chapter 10. Listen then, in particular, to the words of the Lord Jesus, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then we turn to the verses 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses this and has summarized it in Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Thereby, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me hardly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, are you familiar with Google Earth? If not, I may tell you it's a really neat computer program from a company called, you guessed it, Google. And when you open the program, you right away get this fantastic picture of planet Earth as seen from outer space. It seems to hang there like a a beautiful white, blue, and somewhat beige ball in the sky. But you know, that's not all, for when you now type in your address into this program, this program begins to zoom from space downward, down to earth, down to the country where you live, the province, the city, or the town, the neighborhood, and finally, your very own home. It's possible, you see, to see where you live today from outer space. But you know, even that's not all, for what is remarkable is that as you zoom in, you see more and more details, more and more features. All kinds of particulars begin to emerge, and they're not all good either. You know what looks utterly beautiful from space doesn't always look quite as beautiful close up. Indeed, the closer you look, the more warts and flaws and blemishes you see. Now, I think to some extent that's a bit of a parable for our life today. Often when people look at our lives from the outside, they see nice things, respectable things, comfortable things, obvious things. What we frequently fail to see, however, is that there are things underneath. There are things that you don't always readily see. What a closer look often reveals is more than the eye can see. So what am I getting at? Well, it's this, namely that our life may appear to be a cakewalk on the outside, but so often it is a loaf of sour dough on the inside. 
On the outside there are smiles and laughter and jokes and good cheer. But on the inside there can often be loneliness, frustration, pain, sickness, sorrow, suffering. And indeed, I would be so bold as to assert to you this afternoon that this is something that comes to all of our lives at one point or another, in either small or great measure. None of us get to live a life of peace and happiness all the time. None of us get to smell the roses every day. None of us are always on the up and up. Often, living is difficult, disappointing, and sad. If not tragic, as we heard with respect to the Lancake family this morning. And you know, that was also the case when the Heidelberg Catechism was being written originally. At that time, there was a lot of smiling in Europe, but there was also a lot of suffering. Every day, somewhere in Europe, believers were being hung, burned, drawn, and quartered. Many homes looked pretty on the outside, but on the inside, there was a lot of suffering and a lot of sorrow. Life was hard for the children of God. Yes, and in many places, I dare say, in the world today, life is still hard for the children of God. It's hard in South Africa, as I heard a few weeks ago, where the lawlessness and the violence keeps on increasing. It is hard in Indonesia, where you never know when your house or your church is going to get burned down by Islamic extremists. It's hard in China where you worship the Lord with bated breaths, never knowing when exactly the the police might rush in and arrest you. Yes, it's hard being a Christian in many parts of this world. And I dare say it is even hard here in Canada where you never know if the forces of materialism and secularism, sexual perversity and the drug culture will sweep you away. And especially your children. You see, beloved, no matter how you describe it, how you depict it, the bottom line is that in this life and on this earth, life is so often hard. In spite of everything that it looks like and it pretends to be, it can be so tough. Yes, and that begs the question. It begs the big question, how do you survive in a world like this? How do you keep going with more than simply a phony smile on your face? What enables you to go on? How do you cope? Or to put it in a slightly different way, What gives you strength? What gives you hope? What gives you a kind of 
counterweight to all the misery. Or if you will, beloved, to put it in the opening words of the catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? And you know, by asking that question, the catechism wants us to see that only biblical comfort is total comfort, costly comfort. And we'll tweak that third point a bit, abiding comfort too. So, beloved, just how do we survive? How do we cope? How do we go on in today's topsy-turvy world? Just how do we do that without a perpetual frown on our brow and the weight of the world pressing down on our shoulders and souring our lives? And you know the world has many answers. Take a pill. Go on a holiday. Have a good stiff drink. Smoke a joint. Grin. Bear it. And I think you've heard them all. But notice the scriptures take a different tact. They stress that the real antidote to struggle and strife in this life is is not escapism of one form or type or another, but it is comfort. Comfort, but then the biblical comfort is the key to living in hope in an upside-down world. And you may not realize this, but God's people learned that lesson very early on. In Genesis 5, 28 and 29, we read this. When Lamech lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Notice here that Lamech sees his newborn son as a source of comfort in the midst of a painful, burdened life. The curse of sin had made life hard. The consequences of Adam's sin had been horrific. But nevertheless, Lamech receives a son, and when he looks at his son, he begins to speak prophetically, that somehow through him, the curse will be counteracted. And as a result, he calls him Noah. And Noah comes from the root word meaning rest, but actually means comfort. Noah means comfort. Much later on, beloved, in time, the people of Israel are in deep despair again as they're living in exile. And what does God do for them? He sends them a messenger with this message of comfort. Comfort, comfort, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. You see, in the midst of exile, Israel, or the remnant of Israel, receives words of grace and forgiveness, of hope, and coming deliverance. They're comforted by the Word of God. 
Yes, and just how comforted becomes plain some years later when Jesus Christ appears and begins to preach. Matthew, echoing the words of Isaiah, calls him a great light, a dawning light, a consoling light for a people living in darkness. And indeed, beloved, all through history, The people of Israel keep on receiving these assurances from God in one form or another. Whenever they are down in the dumps, and usually they're down in the dumps because of their own sins. But yet God sends prophets with messages of encouragement. And God does great deeds for them and he works mighty deliverance for them. How often has he not on the pages of the Old Testament redeemed them from Egyptians, Moabites, Ammonites, Amalekites, Philistines, Syrians, Assyrians, Babylonians? And the list goes on and on. He's always coming towards them. He's always comforting them in one way or another. And he keeps on doing that until such a time as he sends the greatest source of comfort of all, namely his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes, he issues an invitation unlike any other. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So what is real and lasting comfort? What does it look like? Ultimately, it looks like Jesus Christ. True biblical comfort is all about knowing him, believing in him, clinging to him, living out of him, loving him. And even more than that, the Heidelberg Catechism summarizing the scripture says that true biblical comfort is at bottom a matter of belonging to him, to faith. Belonging, you say, sounds like property, ownership, slavery. I suppose it does. But then listen to these startling words from 1 Corinthians 6. You're not your own, you know. You were bought with a price. You see, Scripture says that when Jesus Christ comes, he comes in many different forms, but one of the ways he comes is as a great Lord. A great Lord who assembles for himself a great people. But that at bottom, all those people are slaves. Slaves of his. And the result, beloved, is we all belong to him. We belong to him as the expression goes, lock, stock, and barrel. Or as the catechism puts it, we belong to him, body and soul, both in life and In death. Now that is total 
ownership. You know, if you listen carefully, you hear it's even deeper than slavery. A master may own a slave and have mastery over his body, but he can never get mastery over his soul. A master may be able to control what his slave does in this life, but he has no say whatsoever over what happens to him in death. But notice the catechism summarizing the scripture says that Jesus Christ has complete mastery. Non-ending mastery. And that belonging to him is utterly radical. And indeed over and over again the catechism insists that belonging to Jesus Christ is not partial, limited, temporary, restricted. He claims your body. He claims your soul. That means, in other words, he claims all of you. And added to that, he claims you all the time. Whether you're dead or alive. He claims you. Death does not sever you from him. The grave does not end. All ties. Little Greg Lankake may be dead to his parents, to his sisters, to his family, to us. But he's never dead to his Savior. You see, the comfort that Scripture gives is, is radical comfort. It's total comfort. It covers all of your life and it stretches on into the future as well. Ever and always, completely and utterly, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to Him. And in that resides your comfort your hope, and your confidence. But of course you may ask, how can that be? How can slavery, no matter how it's painted or pictured, ever be good? And even more, can this kind of super slavery ever be good? Indeed, our slavery and comfort not fundamentally opposed to one another. Well, I suppose in our fallen world, they are, but they don't seem to be opposed in God's perfect world. Look beyond yourself. Look beyond your ties to Jesus Christ and and look at what it cost him to make you his very own possession. You know, ordinarily in the past, if you wanted to buy slaves, you went to the marketplace and you bought them, and the price would vary. If you bought an old slave who's kind of decrepit and couldn't move too fast, you might have to pay a few copper pennies or maybe some silver, but that's about it. On the other hand, if you saw a slave who was young and healthy and strong, it might cost you some gold. That's the normal way. 
But you know, not when it comes to us, not when it comes to the children of God. None of us have been bought with copper or silver or gold. All of us have been bought with blood. And then not, as the scripture says, the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus Christ. Of Christ himself. So great is his love for us, so deep his compassion, so high his mercy, that he spared no cost. And he certainly did not spare himself. Freely, voluntarily. He gave himself up to death for us. And then not a respectable death either, if there is such a thing, but an ugly, accursed, outrageous death on a cross. How extreme the sacrifice, how huge the wonder, how awful the offering. And yet, How liberating this slavery is. Another contradiction, right? How can you speak of being a slave and being free? Well, again, look at where we've come from. At one time, by nature and origin, we were all under the power of the devil. And even now, all those who are not in Christ are not in no man's land. No, they are in the devil's land. And whether they realize it or not, they are under his dominion. For either you're living in the light, or you're living in the darkness. Scripture doesn't know twilight. Either... You're living in step with the dark prince of this world, or you are living in step with the king of glory. Either you're doing the devil's work, or you're doing the Lord's work. Oh, and if it's a case of the former, if the devil is your boss, and if his agenda is your agenda, then you will know what slavery is, in the ugliest sense of that word. It's about immorality, depravity, lust, drunkenness, arrogance, pride, and the like. It's like Hollywood, the tabloids, the entertainment channels and television that are sprinkled with immorality and divorce and conflict. And hardship. It's a life of death. And it ends in hell. The devil's followers today are hell's occupants tomorrow. But now look. Look at Christ. And what do you see? 
If following him is slavery, then it is the most pleasant, joyful, liberating, and blessed kind imaginable. It's the kind that transforms your life today and that secures your future tomorrow. It's the kind that ties you to the triune God and to all of the saints of God living throughout the centuries. It's the kind of slavery that lavishes upon you unspeakable love and wondrous forgiveness and boundless mercy and never-ending joy. Oh, blessed slavery this. Truly, there is nothing that beats belonging to Christ and to being set free by him. And again, beloved, this is comfort. Only it's not just total comfort, but realize as well, this is costly comfort. Never forget, beloved, what your freedom today cost your Savior yesterday. Reflect on the fact that he came down from heaven to earth for you. Talk about a demotion. Recall that he took upon himself your flesh and blood. What a humiliation. Realize that he suffered every day of his life for you, but especially on the cross. What a trauma. And remember that he died a most awful death. For the likes of you and I. What a sacrifice. Truly this is costly comfort. But you know it's also one more thing. It's abiding comfort. Have you ever noticed how the really nice things in this life do not last? How they break, they change, they tarnish, they rust, or they lose their fascination. And indeed, the question may well be asked, what really does last in this life? And the answer, as most of you probably know, is that only that which is done for God lasts. But you know, you could also turn it around and you could say only what God does for us. Not what we do for him, but what he does for us really lasts. So what does he do for us? But surely you've seen already how he saves you, sets you free. But there is more because the catechism now echoing the scriptures reminds us that salvation may be past, but yet it's also very much present as well as future. In the past, he set me free and made me his own possession. But what about the present? Well, then the catechism says in the present... He preserves us. He keeps us. And that's no small thing. It's one thing to know that you're saved. 
It's another thing to know that you're going to stay saved. And yet that too is what Christ promises us. He promises us with the help of the Father that he will care for us every day as we live in this life full of insecurities. He says, I am the good shepherd. I was and I will be. I am every day. I'm your shepherd, your protector, your keeper, your provider, your defender. And he even uses birds and lilies to drive the point home. That no matter what road we travel, no matter what obstacle we meet, no matter what enemies we face, He will be there for us. And not only will He be there for us, but He'll turn everything around for us too. You know, Romans 8.28 contains a, a promise that needs to be tattooed, and I'm not in favor of tattoos, but in this case I make an exception. This is a promise that needs to be tattooed in all of our hearts. God works for the good of those who love Him. Did you hear that? God works for the good of those who love Him. And understand well, He may work that good today. He may also work it tomorrow. He may work it speedily. He may work it slowly. He may work it easily. He may also work it through a life of struggle and strife. But one thing is sure, and that's the bottom line. He will work it. He will keep you, and in the end, He will bless you. And you will praise Him. Indeed, He will bless you now in all ways. As I mentioned, this comfort is also abiding comfort. And how does it become and how does it remain abiding comfort? Well, you have a clue in the answer that the catechism provides. And the clue is linked to the Holy Spirit. Just one illustration. You remember the disciples of the Lord Jesus before his death. They were not exactly the most attractive bunch of characters, were they? They weren't noble, they weren't brave, they weren't very smart. They were weak, jealous, boastful, spiteful, half-committed, a rather pathetic bunch of characters. Humanly speaking, you would say, these people aren't headed for eternity, they're headed for hell. But then Christ intervenes. You notice how before his, his death he breathes on them? And then he promises them another counselor. Somebody who's going to come and live in them and stick to them and work in them and change them. And that's what he does in time. 
He sends the Spirit into the hearts and lives of His people. And what happens? You see weak knees being strengthened. You see feeble hearts getting changed. You see measly mouths being altered. You see depressed spirits being lifted. Christ fills His followers with His Spirit. And the Spirit fills their hearts with His fruit and with the promise of eternity. Did you catch that in John 10 verse 28? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. From now on, says the catechism, we're going to live for him from the heart in a willing and ready manner. Abiding comfort gave these folks constant hope and daily incentive and great courage and much backbone. And may that, beloved, be true for all of us as well. Is Jesus Christ your faithful Savior? You know, I think we all love the personal character of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It brings it down to you and I and our hearts and our commitment and our faith lives. And it confronts us. Is Jesus Christ your faithful Lord and Savior? Is he at the heart and center of your life and of your comfort? Do you believe in him as the one who has freed you, preserves you, and walks with you eternally? If that's what you believe, then you've got comfort. And you've got total comfort, costly comfort, abiding comfort, the kind of comfort that can make and enable you to stand. No matter what the circumstances, what the struggles, what the tragedies, and the sorrows of life. And as we've seen, sometimes those tragedies go deep. But our faithful Savior will carry us through. Hallelujah. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.